And those are found in the Gospels, the first few books of the New Testament. And this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And I've asked Amy to come and read that for us. Matthew 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. He said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Thank you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help. May you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, soft hearts to receive what you have for us. Lord, we want to thank you for your word that you say is a light to our, our, our feet, a lamp on our way. So we don't fall into a ditch, we don't stub our toe, break an arm, trip over something, Lord. You have given your word as protection for us. Lord, may you help us to view it that way. May may you help us this morning to see it as a generous gift of the Father. And so, Lord, we need your help now as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me ask you a question. Let's just do a thought experiment for a second. If you were the mayor of Madison, okay, if you were the mayor of Madison, and someone came up to you and said, so tell me what Madison is like. What's it all about? What would you say? What would you say? Well, it's kind of a complex question, isn't it? It's like, where do you start? Well, you could say, um, it's a big city with uh, lots of beautiful lakes. It has a lot of beauty to it. Or you could say, man, there's so many restaurants. Where do you even start, right? You get paralyzed by the options. It's a foodie culture. It's got a a dominant university that adds vibrancy to the city. What would you say? It'd be hard to narrow down, right? Because it's not a simple city. So you might want to just start narrow, start with a few things And talk individually about those things as indicative of maybe the broader whole in some sense. Maybe you could talk about 
well, it's kind of like a big city but a small town feel, and there's this farmer's market that happens, you know, from April to November or whatever, and it's at the Capitol Square, and lots of people show up. It's this big kind of thing, and it's really cool. You could do that. You could talk about maybe the Isthmus culture and Willie Street and all that. If you were mayor of Madison, what would you say when someone asked you, what's Madison all about? Well, Jesus is the mayor of his city, and he's the governor of his state. He's the president of his country. He's the king of his kingdom. Jesus has a rule and a reign, and in the Bible, it's called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and those are synonymous. And Jesus came teaching, and a large majority of his teaching was, I want you to know what my rule and reign looks like. If you're going to live in my city, here's what that looks like. If you want to buy a house in my neighborhood, or I'm the alderman or whatever, right? I want you to know what you're getting into. This is what it's going to look like, where I rule and where I reign. And what Jesus did is oftentimes his parables were doing just that. And that's what we're going to see this morning, and you'll see it all over the Gospels as well. You want to know about my city where I'm the mayor? You want to know about my state where I'm the governor? Well, it's complex, but it's kind of like this. And then he tells a story. And he tells a story. He tells another story. Can't describe it all at once, but he gives facets through different stories that he tells. And so we're going to look at one of those this morning, okay? Now look at verse 1, the opening verse. For the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God, same thing, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So we know right off the bat, this is not literal, this is a story that's going to illustrate a point, right? Because what does he say? He says, it's like. Well, it's kind of like this. He's like, I'm pointing at this and this story that I'm going to tell that's going to illustrate for you a truth that I want you to embrace, okay? So here's the question for them and for us. Can you receive it? Can you hear it? He often says, do you have ears to hear? Are you willing to live in a place like this? Are you willing to buy a house in his neighborhood? Are you willing to be a citizen in his kingdom? Well, let's take a look. Verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, so a denarius, just so you know, is a day's wage. So whatever the going rate is for a day's wage, that's what a denarius was, okay? After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now up to this point, it's pretty straightforward, right? Makes sense? 
hire some guys, hire some more guys, hire some more guys. They all work, and then they get paid, right? Rather straightforward. Well, things are about to get very Jesus interesting. This is another example of how Jesus' parables were intended to divide people, okay? If you go back and listen to the parable of the sower that I preached a few months ago, Mark chapter 4, we see Jesus say explicitly that. His parables are meant to divide people. And what that means is this. It's not that Jesus isn't about unity, but first and foremost, he's about himself. And the key question is, Do you have ears to hear what I'm going to say? And see, here's the deal. Religious people who think they can control God through their good works and put God in their debt, they hate this parable this morning. But needy people who know that they're sunk apart from the grace of God, messy people, broken people, humble people, people who know painfully well their own sin and are willing to admit it, they find great comfort in this parable. So think about how you hear this morning and what this says about Jesus' city, about Jesus' neighborhood, about Jesus' state, about his rule and reign, about his kingdom, and think, where would I rather live? So here's where it gets interesting. Verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. What? Really? Now, now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Well, right, that makes sense. But each of them also received just, just a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now, who can blame these guys, right? I mean, their response makes sense, right? Like, this is scandalous accounting. So so what's the essence of their complaint? Well, it's kind of like, it reminds me of when we serve up ice cream at our house, and I, I'm not blaming my kids, because I did the same thing. I probably still do still do to this day, but I see it in my kids now. We serve ice cream at the house, and the first response is not just overflowing with thanksgiving and gratefulness because we have ice cream at all. We serve up the four bowls, and immediately the eyes dial in, and the precise measuring scale of the ice cream meter comes into their brain. It's like, which one of these is the most? And I look at my bowl, and I look at all the other bowls, and how dare someone get even a shred more than me, right? See, we all know what that's like, don't we? We've all been kids with ice cream. See, these guys that Jesus is talking about, these workers that are grumbling, grumbling the issue's not the pay in and of itself. These guys who are complaining got exactly what they asked for and what they agreed to, right? Jesus said it straight up. But what's the issue? The issue is comparison. The issue is envy. And as we'll see in more detail in a little bit, the issue is pride. See, Jesus wants to expose this emotion, this inclination, and say, there's no place for it in my kingdom. There's no place for it in my kingdom. Don't buy a house in this neighborhood. 
if you're known for pride and envy and comparison. But listen to the nature of their objection. Verse 12, look at it. These last worked only one hour, and you have made, uh, uh, you have made them equal to us who borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Like, how dare these last workers be equal to us, right? Envy, comparison, but pride. Like, we're better than them, obviously, so pay up. Now, it's important to note that this is not a Jesus teaching about how to be a great businessman, okay? That's not what he's doing here. Okay, this is a story to illustrate what God is like and what his community is like where he rules and reigns. So, so here's what we have to do. Let's pay careful attention to how the landowner responds to these guys that are grumbling. And I think there's much here for us to listen to if we have ears to hear, okay? Ears that are willing to hear. All right, look at verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. So there's a rebuke here, but it's not a harsh rebuke, right? He says, friend, I do you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Second question, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now, there's a lot we could say, but this morning I want to focus on two things. We'll be done. Two rhetorical questions. Look at them there in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Great question. And secondly, he says to them, or do you begrudge my generosity? And this is where the rubber meets the road for them then, for us now, okay? Because what are they doing in these two questions? Jesus is exposing what they're doing. They're questioning the sovereignty of the landowner. They're questioning the sovereignty of God. And secondly, they're questioning the generosity of the land, landowner or the generosity of God. So let's tackle this first one, verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Can we rightly question the sovereignty of the landowner? See, the landowner is just that, right? It's implied in the title. He owns the land. These guys don't own the land. We don't own the land. He owns the land, right? It's all his. We have no claim whatsoever on his land, right? It's his house. You can't walk into his house and say, hey, I think you need to rearrange the furniture. You can't move into his city and buy a house and then say, you know what needs to happen? Y'all need to blow up all of these roads and just rebuild them all because I don't like how the this, this, this city planning works. It, it's a hard truth, but it's a truth nonetheless, is it not? 
Those who have no claim on the land can't tell the landowner what to do. It's simple. It's not necessarily easy, but it's simple. And those who live in Jesus' kingdom have no right to tell sovereign King Jesus how to do his accounting. Now, throughout the storyline of the whole Bible, there have been people that have kind of run headfirst into the sovereignty of God and felt that God was left lacking. They questioned his math. They questioned his accounting. They questioned his decisions. And they want to call God to account. And one of the most vivid examples of this is a guy named Job. Now, if you're new to your Bible, Job is a big book right in the middle of your Bible. It's a very, very old story. It has some powerful things for us to learn. And God is faithful to put the book of Job in his word for us. And I'll just summarize the story for you if this is new for you this morning. So Job was this guy who loved God and was very pleasing to God. And Satan comes to God and says, the only reason why Job loves you is because you bless him. If you take away your hand of blessing, he will curse you to your face. And God says, all right, I'll take that wager. Let's see what happens. He says, so he allows Satan to afflict Job, and he afflicts Job in horrible ways. And all of his kids are killed, and he loses all of his money. His wife goes apostate, and he's afflicted physically with boils on his skin. I mean, Job is a mess, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And throughout the story of the book of Job, his friends come and they are miserable comforters. They do not serve him well at, at the least because they just point the finger of blame at him. And then at the end, toward the end, Job begins to really question God. Earlier on, he's a little more faithful. Toward the end, he kind of walks the line a little bit in terms of, God, I don't know what you're doing, and this is crazy, and I don't deserve this, this is unfair, and how dare you treat me this way? That would be somewhat of a summary of his emotions and what he communicates to the Lord. So God, um, Job calls God into question. And like those workers that were hired first, complaining about those 11th hour workers, they complain to God, and we can understand why. I mean, what Job went through was horrific. Unbelievably horrific. Make no mistake about it. But when Job begins to question God's sovereignty and claim that God doesn't know what he's doing and that what is happening is not fair, things start to get very uncomfortable for Job, maybe more uncomfortable than boils all over your skin. And the big lesson that Job learns is that when it comes to the decisions of God or the accounting of God, whether it be who gets an extra dose of generosity or those that might be ordained to suffer in some unique way, Job learns that his finite mind cannot begin to explain or comprehend why it is that God does what he does. 
and it becomes very, very uncomfortable for Job. At the end of the book, it's oh, so good. If, if you're having a bad day, just, I just challenge you to read Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. Here's what happens to Job. God, because he calls God to account. Basically says, God, this is crazy. You owe me an explanation. And God says, all right. We can do that, but let's do something first. And my family and I went to the Madison Zoo yesterday. Beautiful day. It was awesome. We got to see the wonders of God's creation. And that's what God does with Job. He takes him to the zoo. And he parades animals in front of him. And he says, hey, check out this, this deep sea creature that you probably didn't even know existed because it's down there like about 400 feet. Can you explain to me how I created that thing? Can you explain to me how like this, these creatures breathe water, but you breathe air? Job, break that down for me, can you? Or you see this deer and how these animals, how they reproduce, and this deer gives birth all by itself out in the woods somewhere, and they have instincts, and they know what to do, and they take care of one another. It keeps happening, happening, happening. Job, can you break down for me how I created that? And how that all happens again and again and again and again? And Job's just like, uh, no, I can't. And, and Job, can you tell me how I flung the stars into the sky with a word? This vast galaxy that you see? Hey, Job, can you break that down for me? Explain it? Put that, put that one on a spreadsheet? And how I pulled the mountains out of the ground with a mere word? Job, can you break that down for me? And at the end, Job says, I got nothing. I'm just going to put my hand on my mouth. No more questions. Now, it's not comfortable, but it's so good. See, God gives Job a raw taste of his finiteness. And he spends four whole chapters of the Bible peppering Job with questions that he can't answer. He takes Job to the deep end of the theological pool, and Job learns that he can't swim in those waters with God. And Job learns in a hurry that there's much comfort in not questioning God and embracing his smallness in the face of the sovereignty of the landowner. He begins to close his mouth and embrace his humility. And essentially, that's what these workers needed. They needed to embrace this. And I think we do too. The statement, how dare you pay them as much as us, fails to recognize God's sovereignty over his own things. It reeks of pride. Like, we know better than you, God. Your counting's off. I'll show you my spreadsheet. Your math seems a bit off. God, let me pull you into my office and let me explain a few things to you. See, when we begin to veer in that direction and question the landowner who has the right to do what he pleases with his own land, we begin the very painful and sorrowful pursuit that began in the Garden of Eden where we try to usurp God's rightful place and the sovereign landowner. 
See, it's all God's. It's his money. It's his land. It's his plan. It's his world. It's his creation. It's all his. And we, we even us, we are his. So we just need to tread lightly when we try and take the position of sovereign and like these workers, tell the landowner what to do. It's a hard truth. but It's a very biblical truth, straight from verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Now, that could be a really scary question, right? If, this, if all we had in the Bible was God is sovereign, period, it would be true. It might be a little scary if we didn't have any other information, right? But we also learn that God, who is sovereign, is also generous, amazingly generous. Look at verse 15. Second question, do you begrudge my generosity? Great question. So do I not have the right to do what I want with my land? Second question, do you begrudge my generosity? Have you ever had someone in your life who sinned really boldly, really screwed up, just brash in their sin? And your first inclination, maybe not out loud because we're too Christian nice for that. We'll just be like subtle and, and bitter and quiet. But uh, your first inclination, if we're honest, was, God, I want you to go get them. Just, just dish out some good old-fashioned judgment and do it quick. Because that's what they need, right? Teach them a lesson. They're going to sin like that. Let them have it. Many years ago, probably almost 20 years ago now, my wife and I had a, a friend, a, a woman in our life who was a friend, and she was very foolish with her money. And she got in a pinch where she needed some significant help to pay off some bills. And I remember thinking at the time, man, if she's going to act foolishly, then she needs to reap what she has sown, right? She needs to be taught a lesson. Like, you can't just carry on like this and just be crazy and, like, making dumb decisions. Like, this has to come to an end at some point, right? If you're going to be reckless, well, sometimes people that are reckless when they drive get in car accidents. If you're reckless with your money, well, you're going to have kind of a mess to clean up. So you should feel the weight of that mess. Well, some of her friends um, were very generous with her. And these are young people at the time, not, didn't have a lot of money. And they went above and beyond to be really generous to bail her out. And I remember seeing this, and you know, I'm a, in ministry at the time, and pastor, leader, and I was kind of soured by it, you know? Annoyed like these first-hour workers. Because I want a little judgment for this woman, right? Nothing too harsh, but just a little bit, right? Teach her a lesson. Two plus two equals four, and foolishness with money equals you should suffer a little bit, Right? This is good accounting. This is what's fair, right? Well, the, Bi the Bible's clear, okay? We do reap what we sow. 
And God oftentimes will teach us powerful lessons through suffering. But I'm, here's the point, I'm not the guy who gets to decide when that reaping and sowing takes place. That's God's decision. That's God's timing. Right? I'm not the landowner. Workers for the landowner don't get to decide when and how all that goes down. And if God decides to allow this woman, friends, to be generous with her and bail her out, then God has a right to allow that. He doesn't submit to my fallen notions of what's fair and what's not. I'm not God. God is God. So here's the question for us that kind of gets to the heart of the matter, I think, in some ways. Do, do we, do I rejoice in the generosity of God, period? Or do I just rejoice in God's generosity when I'm the recipient of it? Can, can we have the capacity to rejoice that I just know and love and serve a God who is patient, generous, and knows what he's doing. See, these guys should have all walked away. These guys, these first hour guys, in awe that they were hired in the first place, right? They made a good day's wage. It was fair. No one's arguing if it was fair in terms of what they got paid. That's what they agreed to. And they saw some, they got to observe this guy that they worked for who happens to be a really generous guy. It just didn't happen to be on them that day. But maybe they'd be in the 11th hour position someday and long for some good old-fashioned generosity. Right? See, let me ask us this again. If, if I or us, if we have a problem with God's generosity, why would that be? If, if I have a problem ultimately, with God and how he allowed a young woman's friends to bail her out financially, why would, I, why would that be? If these guys in this parable have a deep-seated problem with the generosity of the landowner, well, it's, why is that? It's clear, because they believed they deserve some too. That's how these guys felt. But think about it. What does that communicate? It communicates a sense of entitlement. Like, God, you owe me generosity. Better get over here and give me some generosity, God. Like, why would we ever have a sense of entitlement towards God? How could we ever say that God Himself is in our debt? Can finite creatures look to their creator and their gracious savior on a cross and say, you owe me? See, if if you relate to God as your employer, so I said earlier about those that are religious, those that believe they can put God in their debt by, I work you pay, and if I work even harder, you pay even more. If that's how you relate to God, like he's my employer, 
and I'm going to use him to get some stuff that I want. And yeah, God, I'll obey as long as you hook me up. And if you don't hook me up, then I'll accuse you of being unjust. There's a lot of problems with that. But if that's how you relate to God, then generosity from him towards others is, is sloppy. Again, it's bad accounting. It's bad math. It feels sort of reckless. And it ultimately feels unfair. But none of that's Christianity, by the way. None of that's Christianity. That's a different religion. But this is Christianity. If God in Jesus is your Savior then you know how much you need some grace that might feel to some like it's a bit reckless. See, religious people always think that the landowner is unfair and a little bit crazy with his generosity. But those who know the depth of how they've embraced 11th hour lifestyle. Those who know the depth of how messed up and incapable of managing our own sin we are. We know we need that type of generosity and we rejoice when we see it, right? See, see, mercy and grace is never fair. And if you truly understand the good news of what Jesus Christ has done in real space, time, and history as a historical fact, then you know that if God were to give us what we deserve, we'd all go to hell. You thought about that? But that's the bad news. The good news is that he's glad as a generous landowner to lavish generosity on all those who are willing to come, all those who are willing to come in repentance and trusting and treasuring faith because of his merciful death in place of sinners and his glorious resurrection from the dead, proving it's all true and he is ultimately trustworthy. So if you're a Christian today, there's no room for pride, envy, discontent, Because you know that the depth of your sin, the number of your screw-ups, and the slow pace of your growth as a Christian needs some 11th hour generosity, right? So two questions that we need to wrestle with this morning. Number one, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And secondly, do you begrudge my generosity? See, Jesus wants us to see that the city where he is the mayor, the kingdom where he is the king, the car where he is the driver is one that's all his. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's Bible speak for dude's got money. He's very, very wealthy. Okay? He is sovereign and we do well to humble ourselves and not resist his rule and reign. But why? Because we can trust him. He's generous, and those who know how needy they are will sing for joy in light of his generosity. Let's pray. 
Father, we um, thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture. But we thank you for knowing what it looks like to be a citizen in your kingdom. And so, Lord, may you adjust our hearts to desire that place and to seek your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may you enable us by the power of your spirit to facilitate that now and on into the future. Apart from you, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name, amen.